The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by AnchorLight. For more information about all of AnchorLight's artistic and creative endeavors, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Romantic period of art history is one of my absolute favorites. And by Romantic, with a capital R, we mean something that isn't all lovey-dovey. It's not like when we say a movie is romantic, for example. It's a movement that entranced Europe beginning with the late 18th century and onwards through the mid to late 19th century. And it wasn't just limited to visual art, but music, poetry, fiction, theater too. In art, it took the form of a glorification of strong emotions and the praise of the natural world. So think awe-inspiring mountains, that kind of thing. Feelings? They reigned supreme. But with the Romantics, it wasn't only good, positive feelings that were considered worthy. Equally, it was the feeling of horror, of anger, of fear. Those are the things that drove creators to create. And one of the most iconic works of art from the Romantic period in France generated all these feelings and more, and caused people to take sides in some extremely huge topics of the day. Some people think the visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind these paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. Today, we are continuing our ongoing series where we are dissecting single works of art that shook their contemporary worlds, focusing on a huge, ambitious painting of a real-life tragedy that became a symbol of so much in early 19th century France. Théodore Géricault's The Raft of the Medusa. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. There's a lot to get into about Jericho's The Raft of the Medusa, not the least of which is the inspiration behind this work of art. Because this isn't something that just sprang from the artist's imagination, it's based on a terrible and terrifying real-life event the naval disaster of a French vessel called the Medusa, which crashed spectacularly on July 2, 1816. The ship, carrying approximately 400 passengers, ran aground a sandbank off of present-day Mauritania as it traveled en route to Senegal, which was then established as a French colony. When the vessel wrecked on that sandbank, the majority of the passengers were able to escape on lifeboats, but not all of them. They were not equipped, like boats today, for example, to account for the safety of every single person. And so with that, 150 people were left behind. But they weren't going to take it lying down, as it were. So the remaining crewmen opted to build a raft from the leftover wreckage, with the intention that the raft would be towed to safety behind those lifeboats. But it turned out that that wasn't reasonable or even physically possible. And so, with nary a thought, the captain of the Medusa, one Viscount Chaumaret, made the decision to cut off the raft from the lifeboats and left them adrift at sea. Imagine the horror of the scene. 150 people trying to survive on scraps of wood and with whatever they had scavenged from the sinking vessel. It was a nightmare come to life. But the nightmare of the abandonment of the Medusa's life raft was only the beginning, and it doesn't even compare to the nightmare of what happened next. 
Over a period of 13 seemingly interminable days, these 150 passengers dwindled down, perishing at sea due to starvation, dehydration, exposure, and desperation for resources. Such circumstances meant that fighting amongst the survivors became dire. They struggled for shares of meager food and wine, and the unimaginable then occurred. Crew members resorted to murder, pushing weaker passengers overboard, and even more horrifying, some resorted to cannibalism in order to provide for themselves in any way possible. After those 13 days, 90% of those on the raft had perished. Only 15 people remained when the British brig, called the Argus, came upon the raft and rescued them, taking them back to Senegal to recover. But at that point, only seven of those 15 made it. Once these hardiest of survivors were deemed fit enough to return to France, they had to do so with support of the British Navy, because France didn't supply any aid. Imagine that. They'd been through an insane sea disaster, and their own country didn't or wouldn't assist them. As if that wasn't heartless enough, upon their return to France, the survivors of the so-called Raft of the Medusa were forced to sign affidavits recusing the captain and the French crown, headed by post-Napoleonic Bourbon King Louis XVIII, from responsibility for any event that led to the demise of nearly 150 people. It was obvious to all involved that the captain's incompetence was the catalyst for the shipwreck of the Medusa in the first place, an irresponsibility heightened when he opted to sever the raft from the lifeboats. But to admit this meant that France itself, and the king, was at fault for employing him. It seems like the survivors were either railroaded into signing, or perhaps they were just in too much pain or shock to resist. But all of them, except for two, signed the documents. But what these remaining two survivors later did made a big difference. Together, they wrote a book about their firsthand experiences of the raft, called The Sinking of the Frigate Medusa, and they published it the next year, 1817. And most of the information that we have today about the shipwreck and the experiences of the survivors really comes from this book. The French crown quickly attempted to censor the authors, but the book, of course, only became more popular, and even went through five editions before 1821 and was also translated into several languages, including English. People were obsessed with the story. It was kind of like the Titanic of its day, except, you know, with cannibalism and anti-government support thrown in. Readers were appalled that something like this could even happen, and their collective fury only grew when it came to light that Captain Chaumaret, though given a guilty sentence for incompetency, was acquitted of charges of abandoning his crew and the raft itself. It was in the midst of the height of the Medusa controversy that a young, talented romantic painter found himself moved to create what would become his greatest work. Theodore Géricault was born in 1791 in the town of Rouen, about 70 miles northwest of Paris as the crow flies, and what with an impressive history of its own, being the location of the execution of St. Joan of Arc. He received an art apprenticeship while still a young teenager, but felt stifled by the traditional educational setup. And so by 1810, he had already abandoned schooling and sought his own way, mainly by opting to copy from the masterworks at the Louvre instead. He had come into being as the height of the neoclassical art movement was dying down, and he didn't really love the whole ancient world inspiration, all stoic scenes and stony faces. He wanted high drama. He loved action. And he found it much of the time in painting wild horses and cavalries, all muscle and speed. But when the news of the Medusa disaster struck, 
so did Jericho's inspiration. It might be easy for us to call Théodore Jericho an opportunist, and who knows, maybe that was true. But Jericho's painting wasn't slapdash, or something he quickly threw together for attention. He took nearly two years to complete it, and he painstakingly prepared every step of the way, going to great lengths to ensure the accuracy of his portrayal. His preparatory sketches are many, as he charted out the position of bodies. He visited hospitals and morgues so he could accurately depict the colors, textures, and stiffness of dying and deceased flesh. He even established his studio across the street from one of these hospitals, simply to allow himself ease of access. And I would say he probably got a little too relaxed with this whole process. Because in his obsession with getting the details just right, he was known to casually bring severed limbs back to his studio to study and sketch every stage of decay. And he didn't stop there. His most grotesque experiment involved a severed head procured from a local asylum, which he kept on the roof of his studio for two weeks to witness its transformation in the sun and the elements. I mean, there's commitment to your job, and there's commitment to your job. Am I right? But at least it wasn't all morose and gross while Jericho made his preparations. He also made the connection with two raft survivors, painstakingly interviewing them and running his preparatory drawings by them to get their seal of approval. Not only that, but he then worked with a carpenter to construct a detailed scale model of the Medusa before it ran aground. Note that this is a model of the ship, not the raft, and that ship doesn't even appear in his final composition. He of course also made a model of the raft, but still, you see where we're going here. From posing models as dead bodies, to then, of course, examining lots of dead bodies themselves, and also to making several trips to the English Channel to observe the color and appearance of waves breaking in a storm, I think we can all agree that Théodore Jericho went above and beyond in creating this work of art. And you know what? It totally paid off. Coming up next, a deep dive into Jericho's shocking masterpiece. Right after this break. Today's episode of Art Curious is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is a fantastic online learning community with thousands of classes geared toward creators, entrepreneurs, and curious people everywhere. With Skillshare, you can take online courses in brand management, SEO basics, logo design, nonfiction writing, I mean, seriously, you name it, they've got it. So whether you're picking up a new skill for your day job, working on a side hustle, or pursuing a long-time passion, Skillshare has classes for you. I've been keeping my eye on a slew of hand lettering and modern calligraphy courses, and Skillshare makes it easy for me to learn on my own time and in my own home. And Skillshare's teachers are amazing. They even have Roxanne Gay teaching an hour-long course on crafting personal essays. Roxanne Gay, you guys. That's huge. And you can join me and millions of other students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. Get two months of classes for free. That's right, Skillshare is offering Art Curious listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com artcurious. Again, go to Skillshare.com artcurious to start your two-month trial now. That's Skillshare.com artcurious. 
Ladies, by now I know you've heard about Third Love, the company that makes the most comfortable bra you've ever worn. Well, let me tell you, I recently tried Third Love for the first time and they weren't kidding. These bras are wonderful and beautiful and they fit just right. And that's because Third Love uses data points generated by millions of women who have taken their Fit Finder quiz to design bras with breast size and shape in mind for a perfect fit and premium feel. On top of that, they offer more sizes than most other brands, with more than 70 sizes, including their signature half-cup options. Let me tell you a little bit about the Fit Finder quiz. In less than a minute, you can take a quiz that will guide you to identify your breast size and shape and find styles that will fit your body best. And it's actually fun to do this. And once you identify the best bra for you, Third Love has a 100% fit guarantee, offering every customer a 60-day period to wear it, wash it, and put it to the test. And if you don't love it, you can return it for free, and Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. Third Love knows that there's a perfect bra for everyone. And for me, it is their 24-7 classic t-shirt bra, which comes in a variety of colors. I got mine in a beautiful rose dust color, and there is no doubt about it. It is the most comfortable bra I have ever tried. Again, Third Love knows that there's a perfect bra for you too. So right now, they are offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash artcuriousnow to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash artcurious for 15% off today. Welcome back to Art Curious. Let's take a closer look at the Raft of the Medusa, which Jericho finally completed in 1819, three years after the Medusa disaster. First thing that is often noticed is that the scene is dark, and I mean that not only in terms of subject matter. This painting is defined almost entirely by blacks, grays, and browns, with the occasional pop of red against a roiling teal and navy sea. The drama of nature, its danger, is on full display here, with white-capped waves threatening to overtake the raft and its inhabitants. There are a little less than two dozen individuals delineated in Jericho's composition, and they range the gamut between hopeful and despairing and, well, dead and alive. This is part of the horror of the work of art. Jericho's raft is littered with pale corpses, and the artist makes sure that your eyes go straight to them. You can't look away. He doesn't want you to look away. But when your eye eventually does move across the crowded canvas, you see them. An old man gripping his son's lifeless body with that thousand-yard stare of grief and denial. Another man behind him, clawing his head in the throes of madness. Others grasping onto each other in hope and determination, or not. And after all of these years, I still can't tell if the red-headed figure farthest to the right has a man draped over his backside because that man has collapsed, or because that man is in the process of biting him. A reminder that cannibalism was rampant aboard the raft. But besides the dead, your eye is going to be drawn to precisely one figure, at the apex of a pyramid just right of the center of the painting. Standing with a foot propped up on a barrel, shirtless and waving a red and white strip of fabric, he heroically signals off to the very edge of the horizon, where the Argus, that British rescue ship, is barely made visible to us. And let me fill you in on something. I've been looking at this painting for nigh on 20 years now, and I always assumed that this represented the moment that the Argus sees the raft, that moment right before that final rescue. But in fact, I've just learned in the process of researching this episode 
that this wasn't that moment at all. Instead, it's meant to represent something dark instead of hopeful. The Argus originally passed the raft in the distance while on its way to Senegal, and the crew of the Argus apparently never realized it. The people on the raft of the Medusa at that moment were so close to being rescued. But they weren't. So this beckoning and waving scene in Jericho's image is all for naught. The Argus, of course, would eventually swing back around, and only then would they stumble upon the raft. But in the meantime, more aboard the raft would perish. I always thought of this painting as a bright moment at the end of a complete nightmare. Now I know that this is a symbol of false hope, which makes it even more devastating. The Raft of the Medusa was first exhibited at the 1819 Paris Salon under the title Scène de Naufrage, or Shipwreck Scene, which was done in order to soften any controversy that might have swirled around it given the whole touchy blame game of the disaster in the first place. And in an ideal world, this would have been a really good idea, especially because the salon was sponsored by King Louis XVIII. So, you know, it's probably better to play nice and to give a generic title, and that was a good idea, in theory. But it was also pointless, or short-sighted, or both. Because the story of the Medusa was so well-known, between the captain's trial, the controversy over fault, and the book written by the survivors, that contemporary audiences knew straight away exactly which scene Jericho was producing here. And they were stunned to see it here, in the Salon, the holiest of art exhibitions, and presented in such gory detail and gigantic scale. This painting is more than 16 feet tall and 23 feet long, so not a little thing. It was an attention grabber, becoming the highlight of the Salon, the work of art on everyone's tongues. And many, Many people hated it. One critic described the work as a, quote, pile of corpses, and most just found the subject matter so depressing. And get this, another critic supposedly cornered Jericho at the salon and asked him, point blank, why he didn't paint a happier shipwreck. I kid you not. But anyhow, this devotion to reality was another thing that was hugely shocking to salon audiences because they were used to seeing scenes of death and art for hundreds of years, sure. But people were typically beautiful or idealized, even in their lifeless state. So think about the body of a saint, or Jesus, or the Virgin Mary, or something in Italian Renaissance art. If anything, perhaps the artist would have tinged their skin with a little more gray, but there would have hardly been anything to hint at rigor mortis, or of skin falling apart, or any of the other myriad horrors that a corpse undergoes post-death death, like everything else in art, was supposed to be classically perfect. Jericho instead made it hit too close to reality, bringing the tragedy of the Raft of the Medusa to the surface again for thousands of viewers. And don't forget that guy who was possibly having a snack on the guy to the right side. It's just horrible. All of this doesn't even take into consideration that political aspect of the painting that were further complicating its reception. Critics and casual salon-goers alike were divided based on political leanings. If the viewer was loyal to the crown, their harsh criticisms of the painting were based on the belief that Jericot was criticizing and blaming France for the shipwreck. Remember that many noted that Captain Chaumaret, who was a member of the French Navy, would have been sanctioned and positioned by the crown, and so blame would have gone all the way up to the king in the eyes of some. Naturally, 
this same tack was given the other side as a reason of praising Jericho in his monumental painting. Liberal-leaning critics hailed the work as a masterpiece because it appeared sympathetic to the anti-imperial cause of the survivors who were forced to sign that recusation document. And then, there was a final element of shock to that audience, one that similarly divided folks into these two warring factions. Remember that central figure at the apex of the pyramidal structure, the one who's heroically attempting to flag down the Argus in the distance? Well, there was something that was considered surprising about him. Jericho chose the hero of this tale to be a black man. I know, I can hear that shock and awe in your voice. But seriously though, this was seen as another way that Jericho himself was attempted to either foment political unrest or destroy the long-held expectations of history painting, or both. So let's take up the latter point quickly. Traditionally in art, it was assumed that anybody in a heroic position would be presented as a white dude. By elevating a black man to the highest height in the painting, both literally and figuratively, Jericho was subverting the rules of the game. At the same time, there's the former point to take into consideration. Keep in mind that this painting hit the Salon in the early 19th century, a time where abolitionism was growing in favor throughout the world, but hadn't yet reached critical mass. And like in the U.S., it was considered a particularly fraught topic, as the slave trade throughout the French colonies was officially banned in 1817, two years before the debut of this work of art at the Salon. But that ban didn't actually go into effect until 10 years later. And keep in mind that the Medusa was sailing back and forth from France to none other than Senegal, a West African nation, and that the black men presented in this paintings may very well have been slaves in the first place, including that man in that most heroic spot of the painting. Jericho himself did hold abolitionist views, so it is probable that he was making a very pointed statement here, a statement that would eventually gain very strong support, especially in England, when Jericho exhibited the work the following year there, in 1820. It proved to be popular, particularly in England for a few reasons. First was the notoriety of the shipwreck, as well as the notoriety of the painting when it was exhibited in Paris. Also, the fact that anti-slavery agitation was much higher in England than in continental Europe at the time. And also the possibility of a self-congratulatory statement as the English probably saw themselves as the eventual hero of the tale since the Argus, the rescue ship, was a British brig. Still, the support back in Jericho's home country was never enough to overcome the criticism. And after the painting's return from its show in the British Isles, Jericho cut the canvas from its frame, rolled it up, and stored it in a friend's house for the remainder of his life. Tragically, that ended up not being a very long period, as Jericho died in 1824 at the age of just 32. Curiously, even with the scandal of the painting that it caused at the Salon years before, the curators at the Louvre Museum saw it for what it was, a huge step in the direction of art in France, a true masterpiece of romanticism, and an inspiration to many who would come later, like Eugène Delacroix. The museum purchased the painting from Jericho's friend, and it continues to dominate the gallery in which it is shown, even today, 200 years later. Next time on the Art Curious Podcast, we are jumping right into the now, this very time, 
to talk about an artwork that wasn't such a big deal for decades that just last year became a big problem. That's in two weeks. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Kelsey Breen. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett and Natalie Broyhill. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. Additional editing is by Hannah Roberts. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. For more details on our show, including the image mentioned in the episode today, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. Please check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in the shocking works of art history. Thank you.